0: Outside there, And you get even bigger audiences. Thank you also for the kind introduction. Uh, though I have deeply ambivalent feelings about the term public intellectual. Because as someone said, the more public an intellectual becomes the less of an intellectual. In
1: <laughs>
0: so with that uh, caveat, uh, let me begin. It sets to freedom of expression in India. And uh, since it's a lecture in memory of a philosopher, I've got a quote of a philosopher to begin with, uh, who will be unnamed for the moment, so are identify him a bit. This writer said, and I quote, no one can transfer to another person his natural right or ability to think freely and make his own judgments about any matter whatsoever. No one can transfer to another person his natural right to think freely cannot be compelled to do so. That is why a government which seeks to control minds is considered oppressive. This is what a great philosopher once said. And he went on to observe. A government which denies each person freedom to speak and to communicate what they think will be a very violent government. Whereas A government where everyone is conceded this freedom to speak and to communicate what they think will be a moderate government. Who was this wise writer? It was the philosopher Baruch Spinoza writing in 1670. Now by this token, how democratic is India? In my book, India after Gandhi published 10 years ago, I described India as a 50-50 democracy. This is a line I stole from uh, the great Hindi comic actor, Johnny Walker, who in a film in which he was a sidekick of some boss, to any answer, any question that the boss posed, will I marry this girl, will my business be successful? He would answer, boss, 50-50. And, <laughs> and uh, I stole, appropriated this line in memory of it, uh, Hindi actor called Johnny Walker, originally Badruddin Umar from Indore, if I am not mistaken. And I argued that uh, our democracy is a 50-50 democracy. There are some areas in which we are truly democratic. Free and fair elections is one. Uh, I think the election commission is one of our modern institutions. Uh, on the day that elections are held, all of India is one. And everybody votes, regardless of caste or class or gender. Contrary to democratic theory, in India, unlike Western Europe or North America, poor people vote in larger numbers. So that's one area in which we are recognizably democratic. Another area is free movement of peoples. I've come from Delhi, no one can stop me. You can come to Bangalore, if you wish, no one can stop me. This is not the case in China, for example, and in some other uh, authoritarian regimes. But there are other areas in which There are serious democratic deficits. The rule of law, the independence of the civil service, and free expression. And I'm going to examine the threats to free expression in India. And I'm going to outline eight such. But before I outline these threats, I must ask a question, an important question. Should there be any limits to free speech? Or can anyone say what they want? What about hate speech? What about extolling Hitler? What about extolling Nathuram uh, What, If any, should there be limits to free speech? Should there be? Let me quote Spinoza again, because he has some very wise things to say also about what are reasonable limits to free speech. He says, uh, in the book I quoted earlier, which is his Theological and Political Treatise of 1670,
1: he
0: wrote, why the state must grant its citizens freedom of expression. It was, he argued, very dangerous to concede it without any restriction. For this reason, we must ask how far this freedom can and ought to be granted to every person, so as to be consistent with the stability of the state. What are the limits of free expression that, for a society and a state to survive, uh, must be imposed? And I am going to argue that, in searching for what reasonable limits. Could or should be to free expression. We can turn to Mahatma Gandhi, a homegrown philosopher, uh, who, in his book, uh, whose book *Hind Swaraj* was banned by the British Raj in 1910, and in protesting the ban, he wrote in a letter, uh, which lies in the National Archives. This letter, by the way, is not in the collected works of Mahatma Gandhi. It was discovered by a very great historian called S. R. Mehrotra, And if there are any young historians here, S. R. Mehrotra is. 87 years of age. He can't hear, but fortunately he can see. He lives in Shibla and he tirelessly produces works of impeccable scholarship based on primary research in the archives. Not on fancy theories of French and German philosophers, but hard work in the archives. He's, and this is, I address this to all young scholars here. He's 87. He lives in Shibla. He has a emerging Is Last week, he, uh, uh, last uh, earlier this month, in collaboration with a young, brilliant historian called Vinyar he released his latest book, which is The Collected Works of Dada by Naoji. So, S.R. Barwakran lives in Shimla, does his research. If he, often he takes the night train from Shimla, goes to the National Archives, works the whole day, and takes the night train back. He still does this. And on one of these trips, he discovered a letter, which like a um, generous scholar he is, share with me. This is a letter that Gandhi wrote from the British government Banned Hill Swaraj in 1910. This is in the National Archives, not in the corrective works. And in this letter, in protesting the ban on his book, Gandhi writes, In my humble opinion, every man has a right to hold any opinion he chooses and to give effect to it also, so long as in doing so, he does not use physical violence against anyone. This is Gandhi's definition of what the limits to free speech should be. I will mean, amend Gandhi's quote slightly, because he was using the gender language of his time, and I would say every man or woman has the right to hold every any opinion he or she chooses and to give effect to it also, so long as in doing so he or she does not use and I would add or advocate physical violence in his identity. So... With this caveat in place, that the only limit to free expression should be when a writer or an artist or a filmmaker advocates violence against other human beings, other citizens in his or her work, this should be free expression. But unfortunately in India, there are many limits and threats to free expression and I'm going to now enumerate eight that I've identified. Not necessarily in order of importance, by the way. Do I have a sense of which are I'm more important than the others, but eight important threats. The first threat to free expression in India is the retention of archaic colonial laws which have no place in an independent republic but are yet on the statute of books. These sections that owe their origins to the Indian Penal code of 1860 are often invoked to ban books, films, magazines, works of art. And these reactionary archaic sections include section 153, Wantonly giving provocation. 153A. Promoting enmity between different groups on grounds of religion, race, language. (coughs) Section 295. (coughs) Defiling a place of worship. 295A. Deliberate and malicious acts intended to outrage religious feelings. 298. Uttering words with deliberate intent to wound the religious feelings of any person. Section 505. Statements conducing to public mischief, and most dangerously, section 124a, the so called sedition clause, which goes Whoever, by words either spoken or written, or by signs, or by visible representation or otherwise, brings or attempts to bring into hatred or contempt, or excites or attempts to excite a disaffection towards, the government established by law in India shall be published by imprisonment for life. Now, this is the most notorious section, <coughs> the sedition section, used uh, against, among others, Pandit and Gandhi. But the other sections also, which I read out, uh, give very wide latitude to courts or the state to limit free expression. insulting a person, insulting a person's religious feelings, uh, meaning to defile a place of worship, Statements conducing to public mischief. Why isn't Atat Goswami in the courts all the time? Now, extraordinary white latitude they give. Uh, And this is an irony The Indian Imperial Court was drafted by Macaulay. A man detested by professed patriots and anti imperialists I have had the honour of being called a Macaulay Putra oftentimes by RSS people, right? Yet when it suits the RSS or the BJP, or the Congress which also calls Macaulay an imperialist, they use these sections all the time. <coughs> Gandhi, as I said, was a victim of these laws. He had hoped that they would be removed after independence and in July 29, July 1929, he wrote an editorial in Young India, which you'll get online if you just go Gandhi, Young India, 1929, Section 124A. Where he said. As soon as we get Swaraj, we wrote this in 1929. as soon as we get Swaraj, we will have to repeal the edition law. Incidentally, this law was also the British statute books. The British have repealed many decades ago, but we still have. Now, not only have we retained these colonial sections, in some ways, we have even strengthened them. And... Uh, Example here is the first amendment to the Constitution, passed in 1951, when Jawaharlal Nehru was Prime Minister and, uh, and B.R. Ambedkar was law Minister. This amendment was prompted by fears of the stability of the Indian state. Again, uh, if I may address a couple of sentences, specifically to the young people in this room. In 1947, India became independent. Less than six months after India became independent, the father of the nation was murdered by a right-wing Hindu fanatic. Six weeks after Gandhi's murder, left-wing revolutionaries, under the orders of Joseph Stalin, who when I last heard was not an Indian, <laughs> mounted an armed insurgency against the Indian state. So at its inception, the infant Indian state that had come into being after decades of struggle against an Indian ruler, was threatened by right-wing fundamentalists and left-wing extremists at the same time. And in this context, Nehru, who was Prime Minister, Pate, who was Home Minister, and Ambedkar, who was Law Minister, were nervous about uh, radical left-wing and right-wing attacks on the state, and came down not only on the insurgents, but also on the newspapers and the periodicals that represented the Hindutva and the communist point of view. And there were several court cases which lawyers have written about, legal scholars have written about. One against a left-wing general called Crossroads, and other against a right-wing general, which still exists, the organizer, where uh, they published articles which were, the state regarded as inflammatory, the court said no, this is freedom of expression. And in response to that, Nehru and Pater and Ambedkar brought in the First Amendment to the Constitution. Now, the original constitution, as drafted by the Council Assembly, had an article which specified that freedom of expression would be curbed only when it undermines the security or tends to overthrow the state. So this is advocating violence. You know. So when you have someone advocating the overthrow of the state by violence, then the constitution said, so Article 19, said that you can curb that person's freedom of expression. However, the amendment introduced by Nehru, Patel, and Ambedkar, three of our great icons, and largely merited their status as icons, but this is a blemish on their democratic credentials, this first amendment, they replaced the clause which said, <coughs> "Undermines when it undermines the security or tends to overthrow the state with threats to morality, public order, and relations with foreign states. Public order is a very broad category. Morality, a very broad category, much broader than undermining the state, threatens to undermine, overthrow the state, very clear. Is a threat to public order, morality, relations with foreign states? Uh, So this gave very wide latitude, again, to curb freedom of expression. And based on this First Amendment, several governments, state governments, more recently, have passed draconian laws putting in place further curbs on freedom of expression. One particularly notorious law is Shakti Rikar's Public Safety Act, under which many journalists, Hindi and English journalists, have been prosecuted. Now, one of the lessons of, uh, uh, well, I should say one of the depressing lessons of studying the history of democratic states is that when, for whatever reason, an anti-democratic act is passed, that is never removed, even with the threat occasionally in that act so you can understand, in 1949 or 1950, after the murder of Mahatma Gandhi, uh, after the horrible riots that the partition, in in light of the insurgency mounted by the Communist Party of India against the Indian state on the orders of Joseph Stalin and the Soviet Communist Party, you can understand why Nehru and Patel and Ambedkar fell nervous. But by 1960, we were absolutely secure, we were united. We'd had two general elections. The communists had come overground, the, the RSS had come over the ground, they formed their own parties, they were fighting democratic elections. Surely, at some stage, Deru or Sashvari or Indira Gandhi or Vajpayee or Moraji Desai or Debe should have thought that this is such an amendment that gives such sweeping powers to curb freedom of expression should have no place in a democracy. But unfortunately, once the state, for whatever reason, is equipped with certain powers, To harass citizens, it's very hard uh, for the state to unburden itself of those uh, punitive sanctions. (coughs) So that's the first threat to freedom of (coughs) expression: archaic colonial laws tragically reinforced and consolidated in independent India. The second threat, which is related to the first, (coughs) are imperfections in our judicial system. Lower courts, in particular, I would underline this: lower courts, in particular are too quick and too eager to entertain petitions seeking the banning of a book or a work of art or a film invoking those colonial era sections uh, and if you think of mfc and the multiple cases filed against him usually <coughs> there's a far from places you know they be filed one in indore one in uh, davangere one in uh, you know Harda, one in warangal 14 cases will be filed by, uh, you know, malevolent activists. And any sensible judge will just throw them out. But, for whatever reason, some judges like their name in their newspaper, other judges may have le- even less worthy intentions. These petitions are interviewed. And although it is true that uh, uh, the High Court and the Supreme Court are generally more sympathetic to freedom of expression, you see it recently in the case of Garuban Gurudan, for example, the Madras High Court passed an excellent judgment, But by the time the High Court acts, it may take years or even decades. Which artist, which filmmaker, which writer has the means or the stamina to carry on a battle for soul? So that's the second threat. The third threat, uh, and this is a relatively recent one, but a serious (laughs) and increasingly dangerous threat to human expression. Is the rise and rise and further rise of identity politics. In India today, the life of a book, book, in India today, the life of a book or a film or a work of art is increasingly captive to the ease with which any community whatsoever can complain that its sentiments are hurt by it. Uh, started in 1989 when Rajiv Gandhi banned Salman Rushdie's satanic verses even before Khomeini's Iran did so. And at that stage, my teacher, the late Professor Kumar, said, we have become a nation of grievance collectors. Every caste, every community, every linguistic group, every state has its own grievances. Alas, we don't merely collect grievances, we articulate them, impose them on others, thus throttling free expression. In in India today, the icons of each region, each caste, each community have become immaculate, perfect, beyond any critical scrutiny whatsoever. That is true of Bose for the Bengalis, of Ambedkar for the Dalits of Savarkar for the Hindutva Vajis, of Shivaji for the Maharashtrians, and a hundred other examples. And how can these are live historical figures? We're not talking about Lord Rama, or Lord Jesus, or the Prophet Muhammad. We're talking about people who lived in the last 50, 100, 200, 300 years, who had a visible impact on our history and our society, a very complex impact, sometimes admirable, sometimes not so admirable, and any society that does not permit critical dispassionate analysis by writers, artists, and filmmakers of real historical figures is in serious danger of losing its democratic potential. And that is what India has done today. And in an extraordinary irony, only Gandhi is free to be criticised by him. Because Mahatma Gandhi belongs to no one and to everyone. <laughs> and it's open season on Gandhi. You can write whatever vicious attacks you are on Gandhi, no one will come forward to protect it. Which is a final case saying that your book should be banned or your film should be banned. Which is uh, in its own way a strange and remarkable tribute to, them, uh, to Mahatma Gandhi. Now, along with the rise and further rise and even further rise of identity politics, we Indians have become an increasingly humorous people. And I'd like to give an example of this. Uh, I was in a literary festival recently where Farooq Dhondi told a joke. Farooq Dhondi is a Parsi writer originally from Pune. He told a joke that he had heard being told by Babsi Sidwa, who is a Parsi writer originally from Lahore. And in uh, some conversation like this, Bapsi sidwa was asked, why do, are you Babsi's so few in number? Why is your population declining? How can you arrest it? Bapsi is a woman. So she looked at the questioner and said, don't point fingers at me. It's all the fault of our men, half of them are homosexual, and the other half are statues in Bombay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I heard this story. I, of course, laughed. That's all you did. And I recalled fondly and sadly and nostalgically, my favorite Indian comic writer, now long dead, whom I grew up reading, who was the late Behram contractor, also known as Busy bee, who wrote in the Times of India in the afternoon dispatch of Korea and was continually mocking his fellow passers. The Parsis are the only community in India who can still laugh at themselves. I'm a Tamil Brahmin. Can I make a sarcastic remark about Rajagopalachari or about Tamils? I'll be lynched. I think this is a tragic consequence of the rise of identity politics. Not only that it's a major threat to free expression, critical scrutiny of our historical figures, but it is making us Indians humourless. And you see it all the, all the time. I mean, this uh, Vishal Dadrani used. What happens in trouble for me here in a in, in, in civilized society would be a you know, uh, social sure remark. Now I come to my fourth threat, which is serious and not funny. It's the behavior of the police force. Even when higher courts are on the side of writers and artists, the police side with the gundas who harass them. They just look on. Uh, I'll give you two examples, there could be many others. <coughs> James Ray. American historian, wrote a scholarly book on Shivaji, in which, without endorsing it, he passed on a tale which disputed Shivaji's parentage. This was enough for the book to be banned, for the Bandarkar Institute, where Lane had done some of his research to be vandalized, whereupon, a case was filed among the few people who stood up at that time, and he was a very brave and remarkable Parashan Indian liberal, now dead, was Dilip Chitre who stood up against Islamic fundamentalists, Hindu fundamentalists, Maharashtrian fundamentalists, whatever. And a case was filed by some of these liberals in the Bombay High Court, which overturned the man. But the OUP, which is the publisher, and I think one of the representatives is somewhere here, uh, was too scared to stop the book because the police would not give them protection. Uh, in Ahmedabad, when our Honourable Prime Minister at that time was Chief Minister of uh, that state, of Gujarat. A very remarkable collaboration between a great architect and a great artist known as the Hussein Toshi Kufa, which some of you might have visited, it's this whole architecture in Nandavaz and vandalized, Because Basang Dalis were told that Hussein is anti-Hindu and the police just took them. To. And you could get you could get dozens of examples, it would happen anywhere, it would happen to any state. Congress ruled, BJP ruled, uh Congress ruled, <coughs> AIDS ruled, whatever. CPM ruled, whatever. The fifth threat, which is again linked to this. <coughs> is the pusillanimity and occasionally malevolence of Indian politicians. No major Indian politician, no major Indian political party, I would amend that, no major or minor Indian politician, no major or minor Indian political party has ever consistently supported writers, artists, and filmmakers against thugs and bigots. I've told you about Rajiv Gandhi and his versus. I've told you about Narendra Modi and LMS Hussein. I've told you about Jayanarita and Paragumal Murugan, and add to that list, Jyoti Basu and Taslima Nasrin. Communist chief ministers are as guilty of this kind of cow-toying fundamentalist evidence, and it would a serious blot on the CPM regime, of course there are several other blots, but this one. <laughs> since he claim to be scholars intellectual, and intellectuals, Buddha D. used to write, I think, poems or plays in his spare time. But yet, he was too scared to protect the rights of the the mm-hmm. See, politicians bow down before bigots and sometimes use state power to bully editors and journalists. Uh, you know, their phone calls made <coughs> often to proprietors by powerful politicians. Uh, there are one or two exceptions to this, uh, in terms of media housing, but I let that pass. But anyone who writes the newspapers knows this. So, that's the fifth thread. The sixth thread is linked again to the fifth, the dependence of the media on government advertisements. And this is particularly acute in the regional and the sub-regional press. If I'm running a Kannada newspaper in Darwin, uh dealing with local issues, right? Italy, Sadak Governance. Corruption, development, Muslim army, the rights of Dalits. Inevitably, I depend quite a lot on the ads provided by the government of Karnataka for tenders, for jobs. And if I'm critical of a local MLA or local minister, these ads will be pulled. This is particularly acute in the case of the regional and sub regional press. The dependence of the media on government advertisements, which makes them. which uh, impedes them in being frank and fearless in their scrutiny of government policy, state government policy. The seventh threat, which operates more at the level of uh, large Hindi newspapers like Derek Asdaspal, Delhi Baskar, Derek Jagaran, or large English newspapers like the New Times, Times of India, and so on, is the dependence of the media on commercial advertisements. Of course, this applies even more to television. This Newspapers and television channels, Times Now, CNN, IBN, <coughs> India Today, Tak, ABP News, which cater to people like us in this room, relatively affluent middle class audiences, are their dependence on commercial advertisements is a serious curve on the freedom of expression that the reporters or their editors or their writers or their columnists can exercise. Companies that make products which may have damaging effects, are rarely criticized, for fear that ads will be pulled. Not only notoriously kill skin companies like the uh, Reliance, but even the Tatas, who are professedly the most professional and non-partisan of Indian corporate houses, have been known to pull ads on the media channels that run well-researched stories that may be critical of some of, its, uh, uh, of, some of these companies' actions or products or, or activities. And a field in which this has happened in which I know a field I know particularly well, is environmental journalism. <coughs> Mr. Vajpayee was kind enough to mention my work, early work in environmental history, and that was inspired by a generation of remarkable environmental journalists, uh, such as the Lake Anil Agrawal, Kalpana Sharma, Darren Gamonte, Usha Rai, Shekhar, Paathaga, and Bhuvan, these all in English. Shekhar, Paathaga, Bhuvan, Prasoon, and Rajkumar, Yeswani in Hindi. All quite remarkable writers, who are Prasool and Shekhar with the best work from Chipko Raj Kumar K. you know, exposed the Bhopal gas leak. Uh, uh, you know, uh, quite extraordinary writers in, uh, in Indian languages and in English. They really pioneered the environmental movement in India. And in the 80s, they were given space. From the 90s onwards, with economic liberalization, there was pressure. As late as 1995, every major Indian newspaper had an environmental correspondent. By the time the 21st century dawned, these had either been laid off or redesignated stock market correspondents. <laughs> uh, so the pressure exercised because of the dependence on commercial ads uh, you know, is, a, is an inhibiting factor in critical analysis of companies. Now, I've given you seven threats and I'm going to just refresh your memory before I come to my last threat. The first threat to freedom of expression in India is the retention and in the case of the First Amendment, the consolidation of archaic colonial laws that have no place in a self-styled democracy. The second threat, imperfections in our judicial system, particularly in the readiness of lower courts to entertain frivolous or malevolent petitions. The third threat, the rise and further rise of identity politics. The fourth threat, the behavior of the police force who are complicit in attacks on writers and artists and filmmakers. The fifth threat, the pusillanimity of politicians. The sixth threat, the dependence of the media, particularly the regional media and the sub-regional media on government ads. The seventh threat, the dependence of the media, particularly the big media, the corporate media, on commercial ads, and this means me, to my last threat, which we have to look within. The eighth threat to freedom of expression in India is constituted by careerist or ideologically driven writers, artists, and filmmakers. George Orwell once said, A writer must never be a loyal member of a political party. To which I would add the amendment. A writer or an artist or a filmmaker must never be even a disloyal member of a political party. (laughs) Tragically in India, too many writers, scholars, editors identify with a single party or even more, tragically, with a single politician, thus twisting or suppressing facts in what they write or print. This betrayal (coughs) occurs across the spectrum. There are writers who are propagandists for the Bharatiya Janata Party, writers who are spokesmen for the Congress, writers who are apologists for the Communist Party of India (Marxists), writers who are useful idiots for the naxalites Sometimes this suppression takes place because of ideological bias. I can't criticize my party. Right? I admire Narendra Modi, so I can't allow the criticism of him. You know, I admire the Congress and what it stood for, so I can't allow. I must you criticism of Rahul Gandhi. Sometimes it occurs because of ideological bias. Uh, I have to be loyal to the CPM, so I won't say anything about the expulsion of Taslima Nasri. At other times, it is caused by plain corruption. Almost every editor or proprietor in India would be happy to have a Raji Sabha seat. Or if not that, at least subsidize government accommodation in the state. So, but the corruption is easy. The you know, corruption is ubiquitous in our society. I am more concerned about the ideological biases. Too many of my contemporaries. Uh, there are a few exceptions. Uh, you know, one of them uh, uh, is. Uh, I, I, mean, I should mention a few remarkable journalists, and I am speaking more of English because that's what I do. One of them, who is my exact contemporary, uh, is a man called Paranjay Bhawatapta, who has retained his integrity and his independence from political parties. In thirty-five years of his working life, I first met him in 1974. When I met him with two of his contemporaries who went to the same school and appeared for the same examination, the I.S.C., and they were known as five, six, and seven because that's the points they got in the I.S.C. <coughs> and they were three of them were always together. All three became journalists. paranjoy remained the only honest one of those three. At thirty-three percent is a high percentage, by the way. You will find it in my, my sample is biased towards all the journalists, <laughs> right. Okay, in this sense. The older they get, the more compromised they become. And I think that is what is tragic about, uh, and it's not just true of journalists, it's true of writers, it's true of filmmakers, you know? Uh, they identified in particular politicians, particular parties, or a party royalty, I mean, I think but the Taslima and case was particularly shared, and the left silence on this, and so the acquiescence of it, the most prominent left-wing intellectuals of the city, were always, uh, you know, any they, at at of a MF they will protest. Good, I applaud that. the same I've seen, they will not protest. I think this is the kind of ideological biases that have deeply damaged our own uh, profession. I mean, if we want freedom of expression for writers or for artists or filmmakers, we should defend the freedom of expression of a writer or an artist or filmmaker to whom we are otherwise ideologically or personally or whatever viscerally opposed. Now I've outlined eight threats to freedom of expression. These singly and collectively undermine India's democratic credentials. Certainly, our writers, artists, and filmmakers enjoy far greater freedoms than their counterparts in semi-totalitarian countries like China or Russia. If I was a Chinese intellectual, I could not be giving this lecture in Beijing. If I was a Russian intellectual, and I made all kinds of people, I've never Rajiv Gandhi, Modi, I can name a few more. I haven't even named Indra Gandhi yet, but I, I mean that should be a separate discussion on digital tendencies. So clearly, we are freer than uh, many countries in the world. You know, Vietnam, Cuba, Singapore, uh, Russia, Ukraine, whatever. But we are distinctly unfree. Writers, artists, filmmakers in India are freer than their counterparts in totalitarian countries, like China or Russia, but we are distinctly unfree when compared to our counterparts in thoroughbred democracies like Sweden or Canada. That's, I think, what uh, a point I would like to underline. I'd like to end with a question, uh, which clearly is, has been on my mind. It's been on some people's mind. Is the situation worse today than it was in the past? Clearly, there was no golden age. Charla Nehru and B. R. Ambedkar and Balabhai Patel introduced the first again. Indira Gandhi's record, you all know, would you have Rajiv Gandhi, uh, bank verses. The left has played, a, as I said, extremely, extremely reactionary part when it comes to political expression. Are we worse off today than we were before? May two zero one four. I want to end with that question. But maybe I believe. Uh, There was no golden age. There were always these eight threats operating in varying degrees of severity. But today, we may be marginally worse off. And I'm going to outline two ways in which, two two reasons why I think India today is less free when it comes to freedom of expression than it was two or three or five years ago. The first has to do uh, with the fact that the threats to writers, artists, and filmmakers are no longer restricted to the banning of books, or the burning of books, or the censoring of films, or the vandalizing of artworks. Now, writers and artists are actually killed for their views. Physically assassinated. <coughs> Three examples are that of Davolkar, Narendra Davulkar, M.M. Uh, Ka- uh, and uh, Govind Pansar in Maharashtra, and of course, M.M. Uh, Kalburi in my home state. Now, these vary. Dabolkar was killed when the Congress was in power in Maharashtra and in the centre. Pansale was killed when the BJP was in power in Maharashtra and the centre. kalburgi was killed when the Congress was in power in Karnataka and the BJP was in power in the centre. But this was a qualitatively new thing. The physical assassination of writers. In my view, and there are two other similarities. One, which is reasonably obvious, uh, is that Dabalkar, Panshare, and Kalburgi were particularly revived by Hindu fundamentalists. And it's very likely, you can't be so, that that assassins belong to that political point of view, which makes India a tragic mirror of Bangladesh, where Islamic fundamentalists fundamentalists are killing independent-minded writers and artistic So That's one aspect of that, more or less. The other aspect, which I urge you to reflect on, what unites Daburkar, Kalburgi, and Pansare is that not one of them wrote in English. I may be tempting fate here, but I still like to say writers in English are relatively safer than writers in Indian language. Partly because they may have an intellectual reputation to protect them. Partly because their views don't influence voting behavior. Uh, so that's the first way in which things may be slightly worse. Three is not a large number. In Bangladesh it's probably 30 or 40 or 60. In China you know, it would be hundreds, either purged or sent to death camps or to gulags in Russia, Soviet Russia, in thousands. So three is not a very large number, but it's dead. Journalists are also dead. If I, if I was to add journalists to this, you know, we're talking about writers, established writers. But actual so, journalists, I mean, uh, I haven't talked little, very much about it. I talked about environmental, uh, let me just uh, add a caveat, because I talked about uh, environmental journalism. You know, the areas of India that are most unfree are the mining districts. Pellari in my home state, you know, Bastar in Madhya Pradesh, in uh, Orissa, uh, you know, Jharkhand. this is where rule of law does not prevail at all. And uh, in the past, it was lucrative minerals, like iron and bauxite that, and, and, uh, that led to this kind of thing. Now sand mining, river mining, you know, and the journalists write about it. In MP, in Karnataka, they have been attacks and threats. So, uh, this is a thing that is increasing. I mentioned only the prominent writers. But the vulnerability of journalists, I think we are, uh, when I checked last, uh, They were we are at 138 of the press freedom index. Uh, right? Now, uh, so that's the first uh, way which will be worse off. I'd say even before the BJP came to power, the last 5 or 10 years, 10-15 years, will be probably this is increased. Physical attacks, not just censorship or having books burned, but actually the elimination of writers and artists and journalists. The second way in which the situation may be (coughs) worse is that the government now in power in New Delhi (coughs) is arguably, or perhaps not even arguably, indubitably, the most anti intellectual and philistine ever to rule this <laughs> family. And I say this advisedly. I mean, look at the appointments. You know. The question is not, um, you know, why Smriti Rani was made education minister? Why did she hold that job for two years? I mean, if you talk, to, I, mean, I say this with anguish. You know, again, I say that as a writer in English, I am somewhat insulated from text because I write in English and I may have an international reputation. As a person who does not teach in Indian university, I'm also insulated from the harassment and intimidation by Philistine ministers in Delhi. But if I look at my colleagues in my own university, University of Delhi, uh, or in the IITs, and the stories are hear of how they are treated by ministers and bureaucrats, and the views, the public views of people such as our fortunately late education minister, and unfortunately extant culture minister, now, what does this tell you? This tells you, it goes down the line. The appointments of Suresh Rao, the IG, ICHR, gajendra Chauhan to the Film Institute, Mankar Niyanani, Chetan Chauhan to the Fashion Institute. You can go, one. do I mean, the person who apparently is uh, going to head the Nehru Memorial Museum and Library, a place headed by great historians like B.R. Randa and Raminder Kumar, uh, it gives you a sense of how anti-intellectual and philistine uh, this company is. You know, I have a new book coming out next week uh, in which... My lecture today will the essays. But there's also an essay in that book which asks where are the conservative intellectuals in India? And I say this is our English. I'm a liberal. I'm not a leftist. I'm not a rightist. I'm a liberal. But if you look at any sophisticated democracy in this world, Germany, Britain, United States, they are writing intellectuals who are serious and critical. And we once had that tradition. You know, we once had that tradition. If you think of the people who clustered around see Rajapopalajat and the Swadundra Party. If you go further back uh, to historians like Jadunath Sarkar and Radha Kumar Mukherjee, you know, I mean, there is a credible intellectual tradition that can call itself conservative, that emphasizes family, community, uh, ways, uh, traditional ways of being, uh, that is often rightly skeptical of hasty change and to disregard of institutions that have survived for a very long time. But in India it doesn't exist. There is not a single credible conservative intellectual in India, uh, with the possible exception of Arun Shuri. And the fact that he's been so comprehensively shunned by this government, that the one thinking person they may have on their side, you know, tells you quite a lot about uh, how profoundly Philistine and anti intellectual this, this government is when it comes to films, what's all, literature, scholarship, and our public, I mean, the way in which our best institutions have been treated. You know, the International Fundamental Research. If you think of the harassment they faced, you know, and uh, some of the IITs, I think in that sense, possibly, we are slightly worse. But I would underline only slightly worse. There was never a golden age for the freedom of expression in India. Past regimes, past parties, past prime ministers have also never stood up uh, for freedom of expression. But it is arguably marginally worse today. Ten years ago, I called India a 50-50 democracy i leave you today uh, with a slightly depressing conclusion that our democratic credentials may have slipped further. We are now a 40-60 democracy. Thank you.
2: My well, friends, after this brilliant and provocative Lecture by Professor Guha, although he does not profess in any university. <laughs> uh, it's time for you to ask questions if you have any. Let them be brief. Before uh, just
0: uh, okay,
2: okay, Professor Guha,
0: you know, uh, uh, Mr. Vajpayee is much older than me, but we had one close mutual friend, Ramchandra Gandhi, yeah. who used to call himself the Professor of Philosophy at Nathu Suites. <laughs> I am the professor of philosophy at Koshi's parade cafe <laughs> yeah, there
2: you are so please
0: raise your hands
2: we try to reach the mic and ask brief questions let them be a little witty don't get too damn serious no? <laughs> don't give opinions just ask questions of that way yes no. yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. I have a mic so I have a right to uh, Speak first, yeah. Thank you very much. exceptional and, and thank you for um, saying those wonderful words about Paranjaya I was a very close friend. Thank you very, very much. Um, I was wondering if you'd like to spend a little time telling us if it's actually the problem is freedom of expression or we just lost a sense of expression of freedom. That's a beautiful
0: question. And uh, it's appropriate for a um, in lecture in memory of a you know, uh, wit, irony, humor are also expressions of freedom. So we are losing some of that, you know, other nuances, that touches, sure, I mean, I'd, I'd accept that. We're also perhaps losing that, and that's, that's of course to do with our time, you know. I think we have to have a lighter touch, uh, you know, often even serious points uh, can be made in, uh, without even, not in a way. so I would accept that. Yeah.
3: Have a have. Sir, uh, all the eight freedoms of uh, art that you have mentioned, I think uh, the underlying is the character, uh, the self-interest. Whether it is politician, whether it is policeman, whether it is fundamentalist, whether it is <laughs> <laughs> the journalist or commercial or government, you look at it. The self-interest and character is what. Or the example you gave of your friend Puranji or something. I think it is ultimately the character of the people which are responsible for the kind of uh, society we create. And uh, I think uh, if I, as a behavior science professional, I would say it is not easy to get people in leadership position who are very high character. So I think the real question is how you can uh, get people in leadership position who are of character. So I think all this comes from there.
2: Thank you. Uh, Mr. Bula. Uh, just uh, two points on which I disagreed with you. The first is the very first point that all the uh, Indian Penal Code provisions uh, should be abolished, those which are in uh, against freedom of expression. Now, 153A is an exception. I can tell you from the point time when I was a subdivisional magistrate in 1951, that this section is needed for avoiding trouble between the communities, and that this continues to be required today. I, I would certainly say that it needs to be redefined to limit its apparently wide ambit and it should be made like the sedition law, now as defined by the Supreme Court, it should be subject to only when it is provokes action or riots. The second point is at the very last of, are things worse today? Uh, look, uh, they are worse. Repeat, uh, one particular example will tell you that when before have we had vigilantes taking up issues perpetually perpetually on behalf of the country and then getting support from the government that I I have in mind the JNU case. The, The ABVP appoints itself the arbiter of nationalism. And then it says to, to the government, prosecute such and such people or expel them because they're not nationalists. This is goes beyond anything that we have ever had before. Uh,
0: thank you, Mr. On uh, the first uh, point, I, I think... No, I'm not a legal expert. Uh, you may be right, I mean, as someone who's been in the field trying to manage a sensitive and complex situation. But uh, the ambit it gives to the courts to interpret them loosely, in the absence of clear uh, directions of the political authority, you know, how would a book uh, by Peter Hees or Aurobindo lead to a communal right you know, for example, you know, in that sense, in that sense, yeah. yeah. On your second part, also, I also agree, and I think, you know, it's uh, this is part of it, the tragedy of what happened in Hyderabad, there were, there were two tragedies of what happened in Hyderabad in GNO. One was, the ABVP was leading the government. The education minister was led by the ABVP. The second tragedy, which is unnoticed, is that JNDO and uh, which I think ABVP people and uh, if they are any, I hope there are some BJP supporters I in this room. I won't ask you to raise your hands but
1: uh, I hope some of you are
0: here. you should know this. Because um, the, the line when someone like me says that the BJP is anti-intellectual, I am poor. tum humanities wale ho. So, because science <laughs> may <main> admission <laughs> la, to be at another. <laughs> right. That's a standard language. Okay. So I'm glad that they respect scientists. JNU and Hyderabad University have the best departments of science in any of our public universities. They're not just left wing Marxists, they're top face physicists and biologists and chemists. They're the people you have destroyed also by letting the ABBP decide your policy. So I think that point is very important. I think this is uh, that it is, uh, it's not. Uh, you know, that what happened at JNU and in other uh, University was it was not the RSS, uh, it was not uh, the PMO, it was not the education based on the ABW that was deciding. Mean, it's quite extraordinary, you know, uh, uh, the, the depth that we plumbed and the kind of what we may have unleashed and how we may have made the. And you know, I think this is again something very important, which I think again every young person must understand. It's very difficult to build institutions, it's very easy to destroy or damage them. And if the best of our public universities, like JNU and Hyderabad and their university, are threatened or undermined in this way, it will be very hard to put them back together.
4: Okay. Okay. Sir, uh, uh, like, uh, since being a student I have been like a uh, very regular reader of your books, and since, I come, to, since I come from JNU now, <laughs> so like, <laughs> and just there was an election yesterday and now we are like in the race, and now I see, that means the third one you are raising, the threat of fighting politics. And now there is an organization on the campus, like Biksa Ambedkar Full Student Association. And united left, there was a front. Election scenario was the uh, united left came together, saying that we want to like push up BJP outside the campus, so that uh, we would have strength. But then Mahbubsa came out with very strongly, asserting that left hasn't addressed our issue even though they may, might have talked about it. Yes. Meaning, uh, the kind of hypocrisy they might have felt in the on the campus. Uh, I really wonder. that me. The kind of freedom of expression you are talking yes. about, like. But the, my only point about the identity politics is, even though it limits to the extent, because at all levels you find fundamentalism mean, across the religions, caste and all, you find all across, right? But then, that means, I, I was just wondering, identity that Babsa organization, when I, I heard the, his speech, presidential candidate, He was like prioritizing certain issues which never was a priority of the left. And prioritization is actually identity politics, I think, what I see. And now, if you want to banish agri-colleges in its totality, it may like... Yeah. I think it's a very important question. As a student, uh, you know, I think it's important to recognize
0: that history rarely operates in black and white. You know, Hitler is all black. But there are very few examples of all white. And they say the Buddha, but we don't know, because they're so far back. Right? <laughs> uh, Mohandas Gandhi was largely white, but not all white, I can tell you as his biographer. So history very really oper- you know history operates uh, incrementally like today. Uh, to go back to my talk, in some ways we are freer as a society. You know, women have more rights whom they want to marry than they did 20 years ago. Fortunately, right? Uh, but in terms of intellectual freedom, we are so that so identity politics part of it is salutary. The important contribution of identity politics is that it has brought to the fore remarkable people unjustly neglected by the nationalist or the communist narrative, and three uh, of these people are Birsa, Munda, B. R. Ambedkar, and Jodhya Rao hence Babsa. However, so that's the salutary contribution of identity politics. On the other hand, the identity politics of the left, which is what you are talking about, like the identity politics of the right, is excessively touchy about its heroes. Ambedkar cannot be touched cannot be touched, just as Savarkar and Goldberger cannot be touched. This is not healthy for a democracy, is what I'm trying to say. That, I'm not saying all identity politics bad. It may be necessary, valuable, a corrective to the condescension of the upper caste, or Marxist narrative. However, uh, any movement that is not open to self-criticism and scrutiny, even of
3: its most revered figures, has a problem. Professor uh, Goh, say to, uh, मैं आपका ये शुक्रिया अदा करूं कि आपने हिंदी वालों और जो बाकी हिंदुस्तान की जो रीजनल लैंग्वेजेस हैं उनकी कद्र की अंग्रेजी वाले आमतौर पे करते नहीं है हालांकि आपने इस रेफरेंस में की कि मरने के काबिल भी जो हैं आज वो ही रह गए <laughs> क्योंकि उनकी पहुंच ज्यादा है पर मैं इसको की तरह लेता हूं लेकिन ये जो वक्त है बस इसलिए है कि पहले कभी भी राइटर्स अरेस्ट किए गए ह्यूमिलिट किए गए लेकिन एक के बाद एक तीन राइटर्स मारे कभी नहीं गए पहली बात दूसरी बात ये मानना कि ये तो बीजेपी जब ये हुआ और अशोक जी और हम लोगों ने प्रतिरोध वाला यहां पे एक प्रोटेस्ट किया कि लो लो तो पर आइडियोलॉजी तो एक थी ना जिनके तहत मारे गए बड़ी बात यह है कि वो जो आइडियोलॉजी है हम एग्री करें या ना करें वैसे लोग आपने कहा कि एग्री करने वाले भी होंगे लेकिन किस तरह से उनको मारने का हक मिल गया वो गांधी को चाहे कुछ भी कह दें उनके बारे में कुछ भी हो लेकिन गोडसे के नाम पे पुल बन गया रातों रात राथ। और आ, आपने देखा होगा कि तस्वीर कल अखबारों में छपी है कोई गणेश जी कोई उन्होंने जो है चटी पहना थी और काली टोपी पहनी हुई है भी पहने हुए दी <laughs> Professor Goh,
0: that's me. Professor hey, Goh, go. I, I'll just uh, make one point in, in response to what you said. You know, uh, I don't disagree with what you said. However, uh, you know, uh, it's the crimes and culpability and the errors of the left and the Congress that have given legitimacy to the right wing. It is because of Arjun Singh that we had Murli Manohar Joshi, and this Smt. and Lalu You know, I once. Uh, I once wrote that murli Manal Joshi was a very good Leninist. He learned from a Leninist how to infiltrate state institutions. <laughs> so I think that's I think that's where we have to recognize that it is that uh, so-called liberals and leftists never stood up for these principles consistently. If Taslima Nasin had been, not been thrown out, and if Jyoti Basu and Bhutale Bhattacharya stood up for our rights, you would this BJP regime would not have been able to pay that. And that's the now, of course it's worse, but we have given our
5: our so-called leftists have given left principles. Sir, it's me, it's here. Yeah. Professor Gohan. Is Professor, the, it's, it's here. Yeah. Yeah. It's here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's me. Yeah. Uh, during the time when uh, Jaswan Singh's book was banned in Gujarat, yeah. on Jina. Karan yeah. uh, Thapar asked uh, that time national security advisor, Prajee Swishra. Yeah. Because that time, Vajpayee, since then he had taken it. So he asked, Karan uh, Thapar asked Mr. Prajee Swishra uh, that's in this book has been banned what do you think Mr. Vashbhai would stand uh, Mr. Vashbhai's stand would have been had he been able to comprehend what was, ha- what was happening Mr. Pradesh said he was the boss but uh, whatever I know about him he would have answered as a, an answer for a book should be a book
1: yeah.
5: sir, uh, latest we have seen a different kind of threat to freedom of expression different and new kind of threat like latest, uh, I think yesterday the first day I was reading a newspaper in which he was told it was printed that NPT, NPT National book Trust is not going to reprint bipan chandra's book yeah. so do you think this is a different kind of threat and if, if bjp and the ruling regime has any kind of has any kind of objection do you, don't you think that convert, it, it should be confronted by another book
0: you see Vajpayee's uh, remark uh, was reported kitab ka jawab that's a sensible thing. Uh, I wish we had said it loudly and directly at every Independence Day speech. You know, not just privately to Brijesh Mishra. We said it every Independence Day speech. Also, we had said Ki, film ka java, film chhona chahiye. You know, because many of the things happened under this watch, including our and so on, Right? But that's a principle we can uphold. You see, the NPT's uh, question is very, common, very complex. Because if I was to tell you stories about how the leftists, including Bipan Chandra, abused the NPT, we won't we won't stop this session. You know, this goes back to what I said about all, you know, it's the, mis- it's the misuse of public funds and public institutions by the leftists that has given license to them. I, this is something which m- every young person should understand. Had it not been for what nurul Hassan and Arjun Singh did in systematically promoting their friends, their cronies, their chamchas, and at the expense of better and more capable scholars. In university after university, institutional, the only difference is the Arjun Singhs and the Nurul Hassans promoted second-class scholars instead of first-class scholars. The BJP can't even call on third-class
3: scholars. That's, that's <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: Dr. Goa, my name is Utkarsh. I first heard you at the Young India Fellowship. It's good to see you again. My question is, do you think the emergence of technology platforms is helping the cause of freedom of expression or it's pushing it back? And just like an unrelated question, you in your words, you're a lapsed Marxist who criticizes the Indian left, Congress, and BJP. So do you have friends? I have lots of friends. <laughs> Look, <I'm sorry. laughs> I have lots of friends.
0: Yeah. Okay. see. Uh, uh, my answer to the young man there from TNU, it, it, Any new process, product, movement, education has complex uh, impacts. In some ways... Social media and technology anyway. It's democratizing, but it's also led to, as memory memorably said, uh, a, 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 a kind of a gigantic uh, uh, expression of egotism and bad taste. You know, a lot of it is egotism and bad taste, and visceral abuse. I mean, I don't know. I don't think. Again, we are behind. I mean, we are. Blind. I don't think the social media and there's a German scholar here. It, it can't be as bad as India. And some of the misogyny on social media you know, is awful. You know, I get trolled a lot. But I get trolled much less than women who have my views. And some of the women who get trolled more than me are Hindu women, Hindu by birth. So they get trolled much less than Muslim or Christian women who have to have the same view, just happen to have a name which says, which signals that religion. So this kind of so it's, it's a complex thing. What is the impact of technology? One level is liberating? But at the one level, you look clearly, 140 characters, you can't, you know. Nuance and complexity is lost totally. It's all name calling, Right. Uh, If you look at some of the other examples in Facebook, I was reading today uh, an article. I'm not on Facebook. I'm on Twitter, but I'm not on Facebook. I was reading an article uh, uh, in the Guardian of how Mark Zuckerberg is censoring certain things because he wants to please the Chinese. There's no essay on this, right, that there's certain forces taken down. Right. So these are complex and we have to to wait. But... uh, uh, we have to see uh, what technology can be, but ultimately, to go back to the gentleman's question about character, you know, you do need, uh, one would need, uh, you know, one would need the kind of commitment, institutionalized commitment in public institutions, in the courts, and of course in the political class, if you want to further this. I mean, I, I, I didn't have time in my talk, but if I, if I may just uh, give an example. There's an example I've already given in my talk, but I think it's there in, it's in the essay in the book that's coming. In 2009, and 2010, when Dr. Malmohan Singh was Prime Minister, a proposal was sent to it, or sent to the PMO, I presume it may have reached him, which said, at that stage, Hussein was in exile. Salman Rushdie was not allowed to come back to India. And the proposal was sent to the PMO, which said, award Hussein a Bharat Ratna. At the same time, award Salman Rushdie a Padma devotion, which is not just uh, acknowledgement of their respective merits, Bharat Atanayupar. And it would be an equal opportunity offense to bigots. He, both Hindu bigots and Muslim bigots would be offended. <laughs> You've taken care of the Mullahs and the Sandeers together. <laughs> because you honor Hussain and Hussain. Right. <laughs> now, this proposal was sent. I hope I don't know where they reached Dr. Singh. The same price by right. if it had, Dr. Singh had the intelligence to understand the merit of the proposal. The current prime minister or Dr. Singh's predecessor may I do not be Vajpayee. I'm not sure. But would they have the courage? No, that kind of thing. Here was an example where, if you, I mean, it's a matter of eternal shame that our greatest living artist to died inside. Much more than Rustomi, who's not really living in that sense. But you know, but if this had been done, I mean, if a brave politician had said, "I'm going to invite Hussain and Rustomi together," you know, you know, had a joint protest by. Are you already a Muslim person?
3: So I think actually you would need something like this. Yeah, good evening sir. My name is Nisha. We have talked a little about the environment also, this is a little bit different question. Uh, just I wanted to know about the connection between the alternative media and the environmental concerns. We have worked a lot upon uh, environmental history also, we have talked a little. On uh, that, so just I wanted to know, we are living in the days where you know, mainstream media is being heat to like Guru Granth Jam over the you know they are giving pretences preferences over the uh, Guru Granth Jam over the Kosi's clubs and you know Assam clubs. So what do you think? Alternative media is saving the environmental concerns. Uh, is it? So uh, what's your take? Just I wanted to. Do? I think that's a, also
0: a link to the best of technology. Yes. I think the alternative media or that, I think has the potential to take it forward. Partly because it may be less dependent in the same. Though, of course, a viable commercial model has not been worked, worked out, you know. You need to pay reporters to go on to take photographs. But certainly one of the great great uh, advantages of uh, new media is visual imagery. And environmental devastation, you know, visual imagery is so important in capturing it. But you would still need... Uh, brave editors who can send people to cover the closing floods, you know, chemical contamination. But that possibility exists, and there's some very fine writers. I mean, I, I mean, there's some outstanding, some of them really outstanding young environmental writers who are often women. Chitraangada Chaudhary is one. Bahaat is another, and there are several others. You know, I'm sure the others are. Not, within who writes for Business Standard, is a very good reporter. And but you know, it's it's a, a shaking space. You know, uh, you want uh, so maybe uh, the new websites will take it up and you know give it more visibility.
1: This side. side. Uh, Over here, over here. My name is Shriya. I uh, graduated from Oxford University with a master's in contemporary India, which is affiliated to the School of Interdisciplinary Area Studies. Um, I just had a query regarding your very provocative parting shot of the 40-60% and the fact that democracy has fallen by 10%. um, I just wanted to ask whether decisions such as Shreya Singhal versus Union of India, where the judiciary struck down a very draconian provision, Section 66A of the Information Technology Act, or decisions such as NALSA, the National Legal Services Authority, decision which gave Constitutional and legal recognition to the third gender in India, and of course the Perumal Murugan decision. Do you believe these decisions would have been possible prior to the 1990s? You know, uh,
0: that is a question I'm not competent to answer. Uh, I'm not a legal historian. Uh, you know, uh, Professor Ubindran Bakshi was here or somewhere else. Uh, you know, they would be interested, I think they'll be able to answer it. Uh, but I did say in my talk, that the higher courts, generally, not always, there are exceptions, uh, take the side of human expression. The problem is that the police or the administration will not enforce them and Peruvan Murugan still cannot return to his hometown because the government won't protect him. So it is a good judgment, a brave judgment, it is much quoted, rightly quoted, uh, but uh, that
2: that problem. Uh,
6: sir, over here. Oh, oh. Hi. Um,
5: okay. Thanks for this. I've been hearing you since you gave that great lecture in 1993 in the Badur Shastri Academy. You might forget, but we've been following you. Um, my, my, you know, one of the, in one of these uh, seminars in Pakistan, somebody answered this question on freedom of expression, saying, why are you asking us about freedom of expression? Of course. We have great freedom of expression it is freedom after expression that is a problem so <laughs> uh, the, the, I mean, to you my, my question is that if somebody like the president of our, uh, of our ruling party says that criticism of the country will not be accepted and where does it, what does it mean and do I then have the right to say that you know, we have horrible nutrition standards in India and uh, get away with it, it 's
0: Let me say this, that uh, as someone who has never supported the BJP,
1: uh,
0: hearing the president of the BJP speak, makes me nostalgic, not just for Atal Bihari Vajpayee, but for Darkish Advani. I've never thought of, I am By the way, it's a sign of my age, because I never thought... See, Rahul Gandhi, I'm sometimes nostalgic even for Indra <laughs> Okay, let may be a sign of my age, in respect anti-Philistinism of, uh, you know, the current regime, I mean, uh, even more than Narendra Modi, the BJP party president encapsulates it, I mean, without question. I mean, absolutely
2: no doubt about that. It is disturbing. So, over here. Good evening, sir. My uh, name is Pranav Path. I'm from Mayo College. Sir, this discussion being uh, mostly uh, centered about uh, the perils of censorship that scholars have to face, So my question is, can censorship be ever good? Can, you know, in the name of national interest, what we're seeing for quite a while in terms of Subharshan reports, almost in a similar tone when it said that it might impair India's relations with other countries, can there be ever merits of sensibly handled within the realm of censorship?
0: As I said, only if something actually advocates the use of
2: violence. You know, there's a case.
0: But that's not what, uh, uh, how things are interpreted by... Judges uh, in the lower courts or by our laws, above all by our politicians. You know say Who is to define what is the national interest? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Samuel Johnson, uh, this goes back to, I commented on this at the time of uh, uh, this JNU and uh, Fiasco. When I saw the statements, not just of Ricky Rani, but of our home minister. I said, Samuel Johnson said, patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel. In India, it's the first refuge of the incompetent. <laughs>
1: That's what it is. So
0: I... So, to invoke okay, nationalism, even advocating violence, okay, this is a country we will not be tolerated. Who is the Tatarata of the country? I mean, we should go back. I mean, someone you, you mentioned NBT, by the way. Someone mentioned NBT. You know, there's a wonderful book edited by Saveshachi Bhattacharya, The Mahatma and the Poet. It's a letter between Tagore and Gandhi. And Tagore made Gandhi less of a xenophobe and more of an internationalist. It's a remarkable book because it's published by the NBT. It's at a price every Indian can afford because it's published by NBT. No Indian knows where to
1: find
7: it. <laughs> <laughs> but eat it. Hi,
1: uh,
7: my name is Radhika. Um, and I'm from Rajasthan. I work with Aruna Roy and her group. Uh, we we were recently campaigning for a, uh, an accountability law, accountability law in Rajasthan, and um, I'm completely in agreement when you say that the first amendment should have been repealed and that uh, these sections need to be looked at. But I just want to um, bring to light a certain incident that happened um, in the January of this this year. Uh, A a group of us were physically attacked by a mob that was led, um, most of them were Bajrangi, that was led by a Bajrangi sitting MLA. um, And we've been fighting the legal battle. And we recently um, were made aware that the first time in about 15 years of his political career, when he's where he's committed several hundreds of um, such uh, uh, incidences, um, the only section in which he's recently been uh, sentenced under, not yet in, uh, obviously, but uh, was the 350, uh, 153 and 153a. In such instances. There isn't a black or white. Um, what, what, in your opinion, could be a remedy? Uh, should we, enti- in entirety, get rid of such uh, sections? Or should we be speaking about certain uh, legal remedies and, and uh, legislative processes that will safeguard uh, artists, writers, and scholars rather than leaving it open to everybody? No, I think the latter, obviously... I mean,
0: obviously they would have to be, I said, I'm not a legal scholar. I just feel, uh, feel worried that these uh, sections that exist give too much attention to courts. There may be other sections in which, for example, physically attacking. I mean, uh, you. I'm sure uh, Ashok uh, once, early in his career, must have the IPC and some other sources here. Yeah? You know, there might be other sections in which under which you can prosecute a gunda who builds up uh, peaceful social subtraction. So you don't have to invoke 155 years, There This sections in another case. Okay, okay,
7: okay, okay.
0: so... So I think,
6: uh, my worry is that they give very wide attitude and can have been misused. Uh, that's certainly. Yes. Yeah, I'm Axel Hanaytsevas from the Heinrich Böll Foundation, EMDA. Um I want to take a little step back from the current politics and give a more general question to the historian, Joanne, and when you brought this list of eight threats of freedom of expression in India, most of them, I mean virtually all of them, are circling around institutions, the institutional setup high-level instructors and actors and so on, and I was just wondering, what about actually the constituency for freedom of impression? Who actually wants it? I think there is a very classic, I mean, the
1: question, how far does this constituency go in India? I think
6: there could be a very simplistic uh, explanation, saying, okay, the middle a typical middle class thing in India, the middle class is small, is growing, but it's still small, so no wonder that there's more freedom of expression maybe in Sweden or so, as you said. But then one thing came to my mind, and that's your argument about the environmentalism. There's the environmentalism of the middle class, and there's the environmentalism from below. So, and I'm wondering, is there perhaps something similar in India yeah, that creates a kind of a constituency for the right freedom of expression among really the broad population, even if it is very poor, and even if many politicians are regarding it just as so, so much object of manipulation or something. Yeah, I mean, uh, think it's a very good question. We end with that.
0: Yeah. So, uh, I think uh, there's a sociological answer and there's a philosophical answer. What is the constituency for freedom of expression in India? All right. Now, if uh, not all of the threats are identified as institutional, many are, but the rise of identity politics is not. All right. Now, if my argument is correct, and that despite its several salutary uh, benefits, such as bringing remarkable figures to the foreground who are neglected. Identity politics has led to threats to human expression. If you add up the injured caste, communities, linguistic groups and religion in India, who is left? <coughs> only atheists like double and Kalburgi and myself. <laughs> all right. And all of you. Maybe you're not atheists, but you're right. So there could be a sociological question. That maybe in India there isn't a large constituency, which is why uh, uh, you know, politicians don't care about it. That could be a, that's a sociological answer. But there could be a deeper philosophical answer. What is the value of freedom of expression? What is the value of creative work? You know, how do societies progress? You know, without Gandhi and America debating against each other, would we have had a reform of the caste system? It's to debate and dialogue and that, uh, and in which we can scrutinize our failures and our faults. We become more tolerant, more understanding, more equitable. That's how society is How do we believe in democracy? We call ourselves a democracy. You know, our politicians trumpet it loudest. <coughs> ago, when the Congress was in power. India was the lead country at Davos, the World Economic Forum in Davos. And all our banners said the world's largest democracy, apparently, a uh, snub at China. Right? So the like, okay, now. So do we think, we keep on, do we, do we believe that we should be a democracy? A democracy or should we be a benign autocracy, which it doesn't matter. But if it's an argument about democracy, then freedom of expression matters. If it's an argument about tolerance, pluralism, rights for disadvantaged people, then debate, discussion. So the philosophical argument, even if the constituency is five today, or however many they are in this room today, because the rest are all uh, uh, madly defending one icon or another. Yeah, right. now, So this could be a sociological answer that the constitution today is limited, compared to say Germany or to Sweden or Canada, but it's a philosophical uh, answer, that there is that for any society to become more tolerant, more humane, more democratic, more inclusive, more plural, XYZ, you need a freedom of expression. That would be right. There's a value creation, The value creation angle
2: to it. one. Over a period of time, More value, more creativity, more debate. My friends, uh, unfortunately we have to stop here because we have run out of time. But thank you very much for being here in such large number. Uh, we organize in collaboration with the India International Center on the 20th September a conversation between a Pakistani art um, critic Salima Hashmi,
1: the Indian cultural critic Sadhanan Menon, that will be at 6.30 in the Kamla Devi Chattopadhyay Memorial Hall in Italy.